unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi recently completed a three-country whirlwind tour of Europe. His trip began in Germany, where he met with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, continued with a stop in Denmark, where he participated in the Indian Nordic Summit, and wrapped up in Paris, where he sat down with the newly re-elected French President Emmanuel Macron. To discuss Modi's Europe visit and its implications for India, I'm joined on the show today by Garima Mohan. Garima is a senior fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, based in London slash Berlin. Her research focuses on Europe-India ties, EU foreign policy in Asia, and security in the Indo-Pacific. I am very pleased to welcome her to the podcast for the very first time. Garima, good to see you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the visit, I want to ask you just about some table setting. You know, many leaders in Europe have been among the most critical of India's stance on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've heard, I think, much sharper, slightly louder criticism coming out of Europe than we have, for instance, from what's come out of the Biden administration in Washington. At the same time, the Europeans have demonstrated time and time again an eagerness to work more closely with India across you know, a range of issues, whether it's trade, defense, climate. Um, stepping back for a second, how do you characterize India-Europe relations heading into this summit? So I think the India-Europe partnership has changed qualitatively over the last few years. It has broadened considerably the breadth of issues that Europe and India are talking to each other about have increased substantially. And the partnership has institutionalized to the extent that differences on issues don't completely derail it as they used to in the past. I don't know if you remember the case of the Italian Marines in 2012, which led, which completely derailed the partnership and the EU-India annual summits were suspended for a period of four years. From that, we've come now to the present day situation where differences over Russia are, you know, a blip or something to be managed. And it has been managed by by both sides. So I think the the context is very different. Uh, The world that Europe and India are operating in is different. And for me, I think both EU and India have figured out where they fit in each other's strategic imagination and broader foreign policy goals. So, you know, let's start with the width of Germany visit, right? Uh, Modi began in Berlin, as I mentioned at the top, with a bilateral sit-down with the German Chancellor. In the press statement which followed their summit, Modi had this to say on Russia-Ukraine, I just want to quote, We believe that no party can emerge victorious in this war. Everyone will suffer losses, and that is why we are for peace, end quote. Uh, You were quoted in an article in the print, and we'll link to that in the show notes, as saying basically European leaders are convinced by India's position and the stand it's taken. Do you think that the furor over India's stance on Ukraine that we've heard so much about, particularly in the media, has that died down? So I think there are two points to this. First is that India's position on the war has evolved. Um, From the early days when the conflict broke out, when India was essentially saying both sides need to de-escalate, of course, that was uh, more disappointing for European leaders. And the, the difference between Europe and India's position was quite vast. To now, when if you look at this 
uh, visit of Prime Minister Modi to Europe when the joint statements have long paragraphs on Ukraine with very clear language that India wants to, uh, both sides should respect the rule of law, territorial integrity, uh, condemning civilian casualties, the need to return to diplomacy, and that India is against the war as well. Um, Minister Jayshankar stated that separately. So I think the, the difference between European position and the Indian position has reduced. Uh, Europeans do understand that India will not be calling out Russia by name, but they're convinced by what India is saying. And it's not just in this trip, but also the sort of really big delegation that came from Europe to New Delhi for the Rice Dinner Dialogue provided an opportunity for leaders to talk about this in a closed door setting where I think India could be a little bit more open um, in its own uh, sort of its the calculus that it is making, uh, the calculations, uh, sorry, that it is uh, that it is making. And I think for for the for the Europeans um, who were visiting Delhi, they also made interesting statements like we understand the difficult geopolitical neighborhood India is in. Uh, so I think the criticism from the European side has toned down significantly, and both sides have sort of reached an agreement that, okay, this is what India will be saying, but we have a similar assessment of facts on the ground. Uh, let me just ask you about one aspect of this. Uh, External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar, uh, he was pressed about India's Russian oil imports, uh, and he remarked that uh, it was likely that India's total purchases uh, of oil from Russia for the entire month of April would be less than Europe buys in one afternoon. Uh, I, I'm wondering if India's pushback has neutralized some of the specific pressure the Europeans have been exerting on India to slow down its crude purchases? Or, or did we see parts of that pressure campaign continue throughout the visit, specifically on the energy issue? So I think European leaders are aware more than anyone else how difficult it is to reduce energy dependence and that this cannot be reduced with overnight. Um, Europe, of course, is very uh, aware of its own dependence on Russia. And this pressure was coming more from, I would say, the media rather than uh, policymakers who work with India. Of course, there is a concern about what if India increases the crude it is buying from Russia beyond, you know, as Minister Jayshankar says, India is only buying maybe about 1% of its uh, needs from Russia at this point, uh, there is a concern, what if this increases in the near future? But I, I think the from, from leaders in Europe, this is, of course, something that is noticed, but it was more noise in the media about this than um, in the conversations uh, between policymakers. So before we move on to talk about Modi's other visits, uh, I want to ask you one more Germany-specific uh, question. Uh, you had a, a co-authored opinion piece for Der Spiegel, uh, which you published before the trip, in which you noted that you know government dialogues between Germany and India have been taking place roughly every two years, uh, but they've collectively suffered from a certain lack of ambition. Uh, in your view, did this most recent visit represent a break with the past? I think it did. Uh, the intergovernmental dialogue that India has with Germany, it's a biennial dialogue. And this is a mechanism that India has with only um, with the very few countries in the world, South Korea, France recently, Russia, interestingly, and Germany. But I always felt, and a lot of analysts have looked at it as well, and the sort of the, the dialogue lacked ambition. Um, overall, the scope of things that were covered was very small, given that this is such a 
useful format of, you know, bureaucracies coming together so often to talk about issues. But um, things have shifted with this particular government. Uh, the new German government mentions in its coalition agreement section on foreign policy specifically that it wants to uh, lift the ambition of its partnership with India, which is an important uh, sign. Uh, Chancellor Scholz, in his very first trip to Asia, chose to visit Japan and in the second instance welcomed, received Prime Minister Modi in Berlin. Now, if it was Chancellor Merkel, of course, her first trip would have been to China, not to Japan and not... Uh, you know, to talk to the Indian prime minister. So there is a shift in how the current German government is looking at India. And a few interesting things came out of this visit. For example, a more cooperation in the Indo-Pacific with the Indian Navy, a revival of the Defense Technology Group, which is um, quite an interesting venue for enhancing high technology trade, including on defense goods between the two countries. Um, as well as uh, India and Germany, they decided to create a ministerial mechanism, which is basically saying, let's give more political direction and ambition to, to this dialogue and partnership, which I think is a good sign of both sides willing to invest more political capital in the partnership. The German chancellor issued a very important invitation, or at least it was billed as very important, uh, to, to Mr. Modi during this visit, which was to invite India to attend the G7 summit, which is going to be held in Germany next month. Um, so obviously a huge point of pride uh, for India, which is not a formal member of the G7, of course. Uh, is this merely symbolic or does it portend something more significant for you know the kind of broader trajectory of India's foreign relations? I think both uh, is probably correct because uh, France, when it was hosting G7, also invited India to participate. Um, and the question was, would Germany continue to do so? Of course, France and India um, have a very strong partnership. Um, but the question was whether this would you know, remain the case under the German uh, presidency as well. And, and it's, it is going to happen. Of course, there were a few articles in the news that um, Germany was considering not inviting India because of its position. And the chancellery was actually very quick to issue a rebuttal and say, uh, well, that is not true and that source isn't correct and we have already extended an invite. Um, so I think in general, there is a consensus emerging in Europe that India is an important partner to talk to and more like-minded on several issues than um, perhaps was the case in the past. So continuing our tour around Europe, you know, from Berlin, Modi traveled to Denmark. He participated in the Indian Nordic Summit, but he also had a sort of important bilateral sessions with each of the Nordic leaders. Um, this is not a, a set of relationships that gets a lot of airtime uh, for people who aren't following Indian foreign policy in the weeds. Uh, what did Modi hope to get? out of these meetings with the Nordic countries? And, and do you think he succeeded uh, it, you know, during this visit? So this was the second India-Nordic summit to take place. The first one took place a few years ago and perhaps was the first instance of India developing a more nuanced approach to Europe. Indian foreign policy um, to Europe has always focused on Paris, Berlin, maybe Brussels. But we really did not have a nuanced understanding of how Europe has developed. Um, the way the Indian ministry is structured is also rooted in a very Cold War view of East and West Europe. Uh, but now, over the last, I would say, 10 years or so, 
India has been looking at how to work with the Central and Eastern European countries, uh, Spain, Portugal. And so the Nordic summit is important um, for that reason. What came out of the summit and the individual um, talks with the leaders, I would divide into three areas. One is, of course, technology, because these are techno technologically really advanced nations. So when it comes to um, dealing with climate change, smart grids, energy, defense, but also strategic issues like 5G, AI, uh, critical and emerging technologies. All of these, um, India thinks that Nordic countries could be important partners for cooperation. Interestingly, what also came up is the Arctic. India issued an Arctic strategy last year, and of course was talking to these countries about the Arctic cooperation as well. And then in every single visit, the prime minister had uh, talks with businesses and companies um, sort of trying to attract them to invest in India. So beyond the EU-India free trade agreement negotiations, um, there's also a push from India to attract more companies to work and invest in India. So the visit was, I think, it had very clear goals. And from, for the first time from the Indian side, I think we see a concerted effort to look at these different countries and see what can we get from them? What kind of partnerships should we be focusing on? Which is a very interesting development um, for students of Indian foreign policy. But also, um, if you're based in Europe, I think like I've been doing this for a long time and, and it's been very interesting to see finally um, such a nuanced position towards, uh, towards Europe. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Modi wrapped up this particular European journey with a visit to Paris, where he sat down with the newly reelected French President Macron. Uh, in recent years, France has emerged as one of India's most important suppliers of arms and defense material. But just before Modi embarked for Europe, uh, France announced that it would opt out of an Indian uh, RFP, an Indian project to build six conventional submarines. Uh, was this decision just a kind of momentary blip? Do you read something larger into it? Does it send a troubling signal uh, about the future of this relationship? I don't think it sends a troubling signal about the future of this relationship, but I do think it is an important um, consideration for India's foreign policy goals generally and um, the the push to indigenize defense production in India. So just to give a background to your listeners, uh, this deal was because the French naval group was shortlisted as one of the five uh, players to bid for um, submarine contract and they had to drop out because they couldn't fulfill one of the technical conditions mentioned in the request for proposals. It's interesting to note that the other five um, players that that were that are in the running for this project include uh, the Thyssen Group company from Germany, uh, from Spain, from from South Korea, and from Russia. And this is a new model that India is trying, where sort of foreign companies or manufacturers partner with Indian companies 
to build submarines in India and would include um, technology transfers. So um, given that this is a new model, I think there are some kinks to be ironed out from, from the Indian side. I don't think it speaks so much about the India-France relationship per se, but more about you know, how can the MOD in India and other institutions be a bit more nimble, um, given that we want to attract more uh, technology transfers and indigenize uh, defense production in India. I think those are those are the bigger issues that India needs to work on. You know, I want to kind of pivot a little bit from talking about kind of the specific countries to some broader themes that animate India's ties with Europe writ large. India, as some of our listeners will know, recently closed a mini trade deal with Australia. There are reports that India and the EU are back at work on a potential free trade agreement. Uh, Boris Johnson was in New Delhi uh, prior to Modi's visit to Europe, talked up uh, his desire to see a swift conclusion to a UK-India uh, FTA. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, India and the EU announced the creation of a Trade and Technology Council. You know, what is this body exactly? What do you think it's going to be doing? What do you think it signifies about kind of trade ties between these two blocks? So the Trade and Technology Council was a very interesting decision that was announced um, during the Raisino Dialogue when um, the EU Commission President went to New Delhi. Now, it's important to know the EU only has a TTC with the United States at present, and it is one of the channels that the EU and US use to talk about broader strategic issues, including a lot of China-related issues. So the China conversations between Europe and the United States are taking place through the China dialogue, the TTC, as well as the consultations on the Indo-Pacific. Now, this is the only India is the only second country the EU has the TTC with, and for India, it's the first of its kind with with any partner. Um, I think it's important to have this body, and I think both sides realize that it was important to have this mechanism so as to talk about issues like supply chains and, and, and critical technologies beyond the confines of the free trade agreement negotiations, because that process is going to be very long um, and drawn out. Um, India and, and Australia had an interim FTA and with the UAE. India signed one very quickly, but this is going to be very different with the EU. First of all, it does not do interim free trade agreements. It's very bureaucratic. It's going to take a long time. So in that sense, it is great that there is a mechanism to talk about these pressing concerns and not have to wait for the FTA to be um, ironed out completely. Now we'll have to see what working groups will be created in this uh, new body, of course, and how conversations progress. But it is a sign of of the times that that you know EU and India considered it important enough to create this body. And I think a lot of the China-related conversations would take place at the TTC. Could I just follow up with you on the FTA idea? I mean, you know, India particularly in the last several years, has been very skeptical about playing a role in these larger, uh, you know, multilateral regional trading blocks, right? So it doesn't figure into either CPTPP or RCEP. 
um, there was been quite a lot of pessimism about kind of India's external trade position. Um, but there does seem to have been at least a rhetorical shift coming from Delhi, um, specifically coming from the prime minister's office and the commerce ministry about the need to really push forward on some of these deals. Again, whether it's with the U.S., the U.K., Australia, EU, you know, is this a, just a rhetorical shift? Do you sense that there is a renewed vigor or willingness? You know, maybe it comes from a new political mandate from the prime minister uh, to, to actually try to bring some of these deals to their logical conclusion? There certainly seems to be a shift in New Delhi, both in terms of rhetoric and closing out these deals. So uh, Piyush Goel is, is, is sort of visiting, traveling the world, um, trying to have these conversations with the EU, for instance. Um, two years ago already, India created a high-level body under Piyush Goel to move these conversations along, which is the sort of momentum we've not seen come from the Indian side at all. The argument was we're not part of RCEP, but we are looking at markets in the West and partners in the West, and therefore we're investing more in the European Union. Um, India made several concessions actually to get to the point of restarting FTA negotiations with Europe. Uh, this is a point that's often not appreciated or known, but just to get back to the negotiating table, India had to make certain concessions um, and even broach topics like um, sustainable development, environment, labor law that were previously considered completely off the table. Uh, so I do think that there are concessions coming from the Indian side. There's more coordination between the Commerce Ministry, the Ministry of External Affairs, um, trying to look at trade simply, not simply as, you know, from the old protectionist lens, but realizing that it can and should be tied to your foreign policy ambitions. Now, would that mean uh, that we do conclude an FTA with the EU? I think that's that's a step too far, and I'm not as optimistic, but I'm I'm happy that there is the TTC and there are other mechanisms. And also, um, Europe still continues to be an important trading partner for the EU, even without the FTA, this relationship is flourishing. So I don't think we should look at just the FTA as one, the only metric of success um, when it comes to sort of economic reforms in India or um, yeah, working with other countries. You know, another one of the sort of thematic issues that runs across many of the meetings that Modi held uh, was climate. Uh, that was a off-discussed topic uh, on this trip. Um, it's interesting, right? Because I think as recently as just uh, several years ago, India was sort of seen as part of the problem rather than part of the solution when it comes to you know mitigating the effects of of, of climate change and extreme weather. Uh, and now you you hear much more the talk of partnership and and, and collaboration and cooperation. Um, did the two sides make any sort of concrete progress towards you know finding ways of working with one another to to address the threat uh, posed by climate change? Um, so I think there are two different questions. One is um, India and Europe working together to address the threat of climate change at the global level. I think at global fora, still India's position is different from developed countries where it, it takes a slightly different tone. Uh, but when it comes to bilateral cooperation with Europe, India is definitely looking at Europeans investing more 
in India and helping India out uh, in dealing with some climate-related issues through, for example, green technology, meeting our renewable energy targets, dealing with air pollution. Um, in all of the all of these topics, figure heavily in India's conversations with the Nordic countries, with Germany, uh, particularly with you know, German companies, for example, working on dealing with the challenge of air pollution, which I found very interesting as somebody who's from Delhi, um, a city that has to deal with a lot of these issues. And another innovation, I would say, in Indian foreign policy towards Europe is the new strategic partnerships that we have. One is a green strategic partnership with Denmark and the strategic partnership around water with the Netherlands. Um, now, these Partnerships are fully centered on dealing with uh, climate-related challenges, which is also something new and I, I think an innovation um, in India's foreign policy. But climate-related um, issues are front and center of India's diplomacy and partnerships with Europe, particularly when it comes to technology and how that can be used for adaptation and mitigation. So maybe wrap up by by asking about one of the most contentious issues, uh, which um, has come up in the past. I'm curious if it was a hallmark of this trip, which was the human rights situation in, in India. Uh, the Europeans, again, have been much more uh, forward, at least in terms of their rhetoric, about talking about uh, protection of minorities in India. The status of Jammu and Kashmir was debated at the European Parliament, for instance, um, uh, a, a number of issues around closing space for civil society or freedom of expression. Um, were these featured at all in in these bilateral conversations? You know, I mean, uh, typically these discussions happen behind closed doors as opposed to publicly, um, because India, quite understandably, uh, doesn't take very kindly to, to to publicly being called out on some of these issues. What do we know about the conversations that might have taken place? Uh, you know, in these meetings between the leaders. I am sure these conversations do take place um, and are brought up in the bilaterals. Although EU-India human rights dialogue was revived after after a period of eight years recently, which is an important mechanism to talk. But what I've seen recently is the criticism from the European Parliament has toned down actually on on a lot of these issues. So it is understood that it is perhaps better to talk to India behind closed doors rather than publicly. And also as Europeans have gotten to understand China a little bit better, uh, there's more interest in understanding uh, what's happening in India, also from uh, more from a foreign and security policy lens, not just of domestic politics. So I've seen a lot of different reports from the European Parliament actually talking about the need to work more with India um, and the more responsible role India has played in its sort of regional politics rather than just focusing on domestic politics, which used to be the only thing Europeans were talking about for a long time. So in that sense, it's sort of diversified how they look at India and the conversations happening with and about India in the European capitals. But of course, human rights continues to be an issue because it's covered very widely in European media as well. Anytime there is an official visit from India or to India, of course, these issues are highlighted um, in the media narrative. Um, and India's position on Russia, of course, was also an issue for public opinion and the media. 
Uh, for political leaders who are keen on working with India more, of course, this is um, this is a challenge because they need to justify why they are investing in the in the partnership with India. But what's good to see is that at least the the conversations and discourse on India is more diversified than it used to be um, even a few years ago. Yeah, you know, before we end, maybe I'll just get your two cents on on, on one topic that I mentioned earlier, which was Boris Johnson's trip to Delhi. Um, you know, you can often get in these very funny discussions about UK-India relations, uh, the, you know, as a special partnership. Sometimes the, the, the Brits feel like it's uh, they're quite desperate to have a good relationship and the Indians are a bit more aloof, uh, perhaps uh, for, for, for well-known uh, historical reasons. Um, but there really has been a concerted effort, by the Tory government anyway, to really try to make this a cornerstone of, of Britain's foreign policy as somebody who is partially braced uh, out of London. Uh, what did you make of this visit? I mean, did it uh, chart any new ground for, for UK-India ties? So after the Indo-Pacific tilts that the UK government published, of course, there is a, a renewed interest in ties with India. Um, since Brexit, of course, there is also almost a race in concluding the FTA with India before the EU does, although I don't think Johnson has anything to worry about that. There's plenty of time. Um, but there, there there, seems to be more interest in working with India, especially as the UK increases its engagement with the broader Indo-Pacific. Um, so I think this, this visit was important for that reason, um, also because it was long overdue. I think Johnson had to cancel his, his trips to India a couple of times because of the pandemic situation. Um, but I think beyond the media highlights, there is a lot going on in the UK-India partnership. Um, there has been a revival of sorts here as well. Um, on uh, on the UK India front, uh, not just the EU India front, um, particularly on sort of security issues in the Indo Pacific and, and alignment on China related issues as well, where the UK has also shifted its position recently. Um, so I think beyond beyond the sort of what's in the news, uh, even the UK India partnership is a bit more substantial than it used to be, um, even a few years ago. My guest on the show this week is Garima Mohan. She is a senior fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund based out of Europe. She is one of the most respected observers of India-EU relations and Indian foreign policy towards Europe. Garima, I know you had an extremely hectic week, probably a sleep-deprived week. So thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your insights with us on the show. Thank you for having me. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Panada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.